So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 16. Well, we're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 16, near the very end of the book, but we'll also be looking at a couple of other passages together. Uh, And the way I want to start is to teach you a word if you've never learned it before. And the word is in verse 22. It's the word Maranatha. Maranatha. And uh, if you don't see it uh, there, it's because most of our English Bibles actually translate it. But the word is Aramaic. And uh, those early believers in Jesus, those first Christians, uh, most of them would have been familiar with three or four languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, uh, Greek, Koine Greek. They probably spoke mostly Aramaic, and then when they wrote letters like we have here in, in our New Testament, they wrote in Greek. But this is one of those Aramaic words that, that got in, because they probably use this a lot. Maranatha. It means, O Lord, or our Lord, come. Come, O Lord. It's a prayer. It's, a, it's calling on the Lord Jesus to fulfill his promise to come, to return for his people. And we know it's addressed to Jesus because of the very next verse, which says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And what I want you to see is that Maranatha is not only an an expression of faith, okay, the belief that Jesus is Lord, and it is that. But above and beyond that, it is an expression of longing, expression of deep desire. Those early Christians prayed, Maranatha, O Lord, come, because they deeply wanted Jesus to return. This was their hope above all other hopes. The thing that they looked forward to more than they looked forward to anything else. And that's really why I want to think about it today with you. Because I think it's easy for that not to be true of believers in Jesus today. Uh, I think many of us, and I include myself here, I think many of us are prone to look forward to other things, to anticipate other things, to hope in other things more than we look forward to Jesus returning and doing all that he promised. Uh, Those things we've been reading about in chapter 15, him coming and resurrecting us transforming us, transforming our world. And it's not that looking forward to other things is wrong. I, I don't mean that. It's just that other hopes, other hopes are not big enough. And they're not certain enough. Because you can hope in things that don't happen. That happens a lot. Or they're not, they're just not good enough to take the place of this hope. Those first believers in Jesus, they anticipated this future 
so eagerly that it radically affected how they live day to day. I mean, it motivated them to take huge risks in spreading the good news about Jesus to, to others who, who didn't know him. Uh, it, it comforted them greatly in times of grief, and we all have those. In times of suffering, it strengthened them with hope. And when they faced fierce opposition, it gave them courage. I want that to be true of me. And I want that to be true of you. So I want to look again. I want to just unpack this truth. Look again at this truth of Jesus returning and of our coming resurrection. And I want to pray that God will cause that to go deep into our hearts and become the hope above all other hopes so that it will have the kind of power in our lives that it's meant to have. So uh, we're going to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 26. By the way, there's a note sheet in your folder if you haven't seen it yet, and it's got these passages on it. So verse 21 of chapter 15, let me pray as we look at this. Father, will you um, take this truth and pierce our hearts with it and fan it into flame so that this hope becomes our hope above all others? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 21 of chapter 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so if you're connected to Adam, you'll die, and we are, and we will. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if you're connected to Christ, you'll be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, first bit of the harvest, then at his coming, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I want to focus on this day, this coming day, that verse 24 calls the end. And you need to know, that doesn't mean the end, like you see at the end of a movie or at the end of a book. It doesn't mean the stopping point after which nothing else happens. No, because eternity, we know, is going to be filled with one glorious experience after another. So it doesn't mean that. The end here means the goal, the aim, the fulfillment of God's will at last. That Ephesians 1.10 calls the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It's when the kingdom that Jesus talked about and taught about, it's when the kingdom will be fully established. When he puts all of his enemies under his feet. 
and death is destroyed, and God is all in all. Or sum it up like this. It's the day when everything that is wrong is going to be made right forever in Christ. The day when everything that's wrong is going to be made right forever. Now I want to turn to another passage because it gives us additional details about this coming day. This is Romans 8, 18 through 25. Take a look. I consider that our present sufferings, so the present has sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us or to us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, the children of God, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Okay, so here's talking about the curse that God placed on creation because of humanity's sin. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Talking about our resurrection when Jesus comes. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. We anticipate it patiently. What are you hoping for? What are you looking forward to? What are you anticipating eagerly? See, if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, this is the thing to be waiting for above everything else. Above finishing school, getting married, having children, buying a house, getting your dream job, getting a promotion, retiring, going on vacation. And there's nothing wrong with looking forward to any of those things. But they're not certain, and they're not big enough, and they're not good enough. This is the thing to look forward to, your hope above all hopes, looking forward to this day when every wrong will be made right, when Jesus comes. We're going to think this through a little bit. There's two parts to this, two parts to everything that's wrong. First part's everything that's wrong with us. So verse 23 talks about the redemption of our bodies, resurrection of our bodies, your physical body, everything that's physically wrong with you. will be made right. Every physical flaw, every, every disability. There'll be no more disease. No more kids catching cold as soon as they go back to school. <laughs> no more weakness. No more pain. But that's not all. Resurrection is not only going to fix our bodies, it's, it's going to fix our minds and our hearts. So we don't sin anymore. 
Look at Romans 8.29. There's a few verses further down. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, God's going to see to it. God is going to see to it. If you wonder what it's God all about, this, okay, this is it. He's going to see to it that those who belong to Jesus become like Jesus. Not just in our bodies. We see that in Philippians 3. Our, have a glorious body like his glorious body. But not just that. Our character. Our character will be like his. Just think about that for a minute. You know those character defects you have? If you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to somebody who lives with you. <laughs> They'll clue you in. We all have them. Those things that drive you crazy about yourself, drive other people crazy about you. You know, maybe it's impatience or short temper, road rage, selfishness, lust, whatever. Those things that if you're a believer in Jesus, you have to fight, you have to fight with every day by faith. One day the fight will be over. It'll be over. It'll be done. Everything wrong with us will be made right. Then the other part of what's wrong includes everything that's wrong with this world. There's a lot wrong with this world. Evil will be finished forever. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't that sound just amazing? All right, well, let's slow down a bit. Because evil isn't just out there somewhere, is it? As if you could put an end to it just by rounding up a few bad guys. It's not how it works. The line separating good and evil runs through every human heart. And God must put an end to evil. He must condemn evil. He must judge evil or he's not good. So let that sink in. You and I are guilty of evil. And God must judge evil. This is why the message of Jesus is called the good news. Because in Jesus, God has made a way for his perfect justice to fall on himself instead of on us. Look at John 3, 17 and 18. Many of us are familiar with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look at the next two verses. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. When he came the first time, he didn't come to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes, whoever trusts in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned or remains condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So the picture here, if you want to use an illustration, think of us all um, on a ship that just went down. And we're all in the ocean, drowning. And God's lifeboat, Jesus, captain of that lifeboat, offers to pull us in. And if we trust him and let him, we're saved. If we don't, if we refuse to trust Him, 
we remain in our peril and drown. If you don't rely on Jesus to pay for your sin, you have to pay for it yourself. When God finally judges evil, when he finally puts an end to it forever, justice will be done. And by how you respond to Jesus, you choose how justice will be done for you. If you trust him, he will make you right with God. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And the promise that he will one day transform you, that promise becomes true for you. But if you reject him, and that's the only alternative, you remain condemned, excluded. But one way or another, every wrong will be made right. And then, then comes the greatest thing of all. And you can see it maybe most clearly in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Here's the Apostle John speaking, and he's been given a glimpse. He's been given a vision of this future day. And he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, humanity. He will dwell with them. Dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we get little tastes of joy now and then, don't we, in this life? We get little little tastes. Maybe just a a gorgeous day, a beautiful sunset, or we're someplace where the scenery is just amazing, lots of that around. We get these little tastes. Or maybe music that we love makes us want to dance, sing, a kiss from our favorite person, catching a really big fish, if you're into that. We get these little tastes of joy. They never last. They never last. And then, at other times, experiences come into our lives that are just brutally difficult, and they suck the joy right out of our souls. Why is joy so elusive? Because... We were made for God, and nothing less will satisfy us. Psalm 1611, in your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's so important that you get this. It is so important to get this. If you think the point of becoming a Christian is having your sins forgiven, you're missing it. Forgiveness is not the goal. God is the goal. Forgiveness is how Jesus gets us to the goal. Forgiveness is Jesus getting rid of the barrier to the goal, the barrier between us and God. 
our sin. 1 Peter 3.18, look at it. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to church. <laughs> to bring you to heaven. To bring you to God. To bring you to God. It's the joy. It's the joy of God's presence that Jesus died to give us. So, Maranatha! Come! That's our hope. That's our hope. What does it do for you if you actually make that your hope? Your hope above all other hopes. The thing you anticipate above all other things. What if you actually pray Maranatha and long for that to happen? What difference does it make? Well, it enables you to do things you can't otherwise do. I'll mention three. First, it enables you to keep pain in perspective. That's one of the easiest things to lose when we're hurting, is lose perspective. So easy to do. So all creation groans, that's what it says. By the way, that's why it's always a mistake to look around at the world and see the suffering and say, oh, you know, there's just, God can't be good or God doesn't exist. As if what this means is that the world is as God created it. And it's not. See, if you leave out what God says about stuff, you get the wrong answer. All creation groans. Why? Because of sin, because of the curse. It will one day be removed. But we hear about it every day. So, hurricanes. Earthquakes, tsunamis, poverty, wars, terrorism, murders, rapes, countless injustices, large and small, families ruined by addiction or abuse or betrayal. I'm really not trying to be depressing here. I'm simply pointing out the obvious. Life in this world can really, really hurt. And when it hurts, and even if you're not the one hurting, even if you right now aren't hurting, if you're a believer in Jesus, he calls us to go in compassion to those who are and to help lift their burden, share they're suffering, not run away from it. So one way or another, we're going to taste pain. And when you're hurting or you're trying to comfort someone who is, there's another sermon here too about how to do that. Let me just say how you don't do it. You don't rush to them and try to correct their thinking while they're still bleeding or they're hurting. Best thing you could do is do what Job's comforters did before they went off track. Be there. Just be there. As soon as they opened their mouth, everything went downhill. <laughs> and it's not that the truth shouldn't be shared. It, it can be and it should be when it's time. When it's time. You need to know. You need to know in those painful times that every wrong is going to be made right. You need to know that the promise of Maranatha is true. Because if it's true, 
then our present experience of pain, no matter how hard it is, and it can be very, very hard, it's temporary. It's temporary. And it doesn't compare to what's coming. Now, don't misunderstand that. It says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That doesn't mean the pain doesn't hurt. It's not saying it's nothing by experience. It's saying it's not worth comparing to how great it's going to be. When all is said and done and every wrong is made right, the joy that we're going to experience will be so much greater than the pain we have experienced that we won't even think it's worth talking about anymore. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But the hope of Maranatha helps keep pain in perspective. And that's very powerful, because when you're hurting, sometimes it feels like the pain is all there is. That feels like it's all there is. So it makes a difference. Second difference. It enables you to turn frustration into anticipation. Turn your frustration into anticipation. <laughs> Let me ask a question. Does the fact that things don't work out the way they should, or that people don't act the way they should, does that ever bother you? Yeah, sure it does. What is our natural response when we get frustrated? We get frustrated with imperfect things, or we get frustrated with imperfect people. What's our natural response? Isn't it to complain? Be honest. Am I the only one? I don't think so. Thank you. That's our natural response, to gripe. To bellyache, I love that word. To lament about this fact that the world is not a perfect place. And even if we're just doing it in our heads, our natural response to frustration is to complain. But look at Philippians 2.14. <laughs> Do everything. Yes, that's what the word means. Do everything. Say, Pastor Scott, isn't that word in the Greek mean something other than everything? <laughs> no. It means everything. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I suppose this might be the most disobeyed verse in the whole Bible. <laughs> Griping may be natural, but it's sin. It may be natural, but you know what? It's useless because it accomplishes nothing good. How many of you, once you gripe, think, whoa, oh, now everything's better? <laughs> Never, ever. In fact, it's worse than useless because... Griping is contagious. It is. When you gripe, it puts everybody around you in a griping mood. And they all go, yeah, you're right. Things are terrible. This is horrible. Arr. Let me join you in this gripe fest. And pretty soon, you can lead a whole group astray with a negative griping attitude. And we're all now, we're all, instead of being focused on the Lord, instead of being focused on the work he wants us to do, instead of being out there meeting other people's needs, we're all just sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not good. Well, but what do you do when you're frustrated with things that are frustrating? Look again at verses 24 and 25 here, Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Okay, so the, the trick is not to look at what's seen. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for we, what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what he's saying is don't focus on what you can see. Because what you can see is really frustrating. 
Instead, look forward to the day when that frustrating thing is going to be fixed. And you know it is. And be confident that day when God's going to right every wrong. And every hurt will be healed. Every injustice made right. Every frustration fixed. Let your frustration become anticipation. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Isn't that what's, what gets us really frustrated at times? We see terrible things happen. It looks like people get away with it. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Let your frustration become anticipation. One more. Making this hope your greatest hope. Maranatha. It enables you to do good. Now, one of the worries people sometimes have about this <laughs> is they worry if, if people really do this, if Christians really do pray, Maranatha, make, make the hope of Jesus coming and, and righting every wrong, make that our greatest hope and, and, and think about that and pray for that and, and anticipate that, well, then we're just going to disconnect from the real world and all of its problems because we're just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come and fix everything. So ignore the suffering, ignore the injustice. Sooner or later, they're all just going to go away anyway. No, 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 no. If we really anticipate Jesus returning, we're going to want to do what he told us to do. So look at Titus 2.13. We are waiting, we are anticipating for our blessed hope, love that, Happy expectation, that's what that means. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see it? So we're waiting for Jesus to return, but it's not a passive waiting. We're not just killing, our, killing time until he returns. Not if we're taking him seriously, because he gave himself for us. That means he died to make us his people, the people for his own possession who are what? Zealous. What's that? Eager to do good works, to do what he said. So if we genuinely look forward to his coming, we'll do it. It's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference if we really do look forward to this. I mean, just ask yourself this. Why did Jesus bother giving us this promise? He didn't have to. He could have just surprised us. Oh, I didn't know you were coming. <laughs> he gave us a promise. Why? What are we supposed to do with it? Just hear it and go, oh, that's nice. No. We're to grab onto that promise the way a drowning man grabs onto a life raft. And we say, oh, I'm so glad. I cannot wait. This gives me hope. This gives me courage. I can handle the hurts. I can handle the disappointments. I can handle the frustrations. I can do the hard things Jesus wants me to do 
because I know that when he comes, it's going to be so great. So yes, Maranatha, Lord, come. What, what pain, what pain do you need to have put in perspective today? What frustration do you need to turn into anticipation? What good work are you hesitating to do because you're afraid or you're lazy or you're don't want to deal with it? Whatever it is, take it and now look at it in the light of this promise, this prayer, this hope. Maranatha. Lord, let the promise of your coming Coming to give me a new body, a new heart, a new mind, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where there's no suffering, no tears, no pain, no dying, but a future of unending joy and glory in your very presence. Let that promise empower me to live the way you want me to. Maranatha. Maranatha. Say that with me. Maranatha. Let's pray. O oh Lord, come. I remember how hard it was to pray that when I was a young man who very much wanted to get married, very much wanted to have a family. And Lord, it was good to want those things, but not to want them more than I want you. And so I pray you would help all of us who struggle with wanting and hoping in other things more than we hope in your coming. Lord, give us perspective. Lord, may this hope just fill us with so much joy and expectation and eagerness that when you come, Lord, you will find us a people longing for your return, waiting eagerly. So Maranatha, Lord, Lord, come, we pray in your name. Amen.